This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 142 of Healthy Critters Radio on the Horse Radio Network. Healthy Critters Radio is brought to you by Biostar US. You can find them online at biostarus.com. On today's show, we talk with FEI competitor and trainer Jim Coford about musical freestyles. The breed of the show is the Norwegian Lundehund. In critter nutrition, we learn the devils and the details. And in Coffee Clatch, we ask, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book about animals would you want to have with you? Listen in. Tigger. Hello, I'm Coach Jen, and Patty's not with us again. What the heck is? Did she like she abandon is us? A vacation whore. <laughs> <laughs> she needs to not take vacations on recording days. We need to exactly. work on that. I mean, talk about priorities. I know. <laughs> well, normally T- Patty's here, and she helps to take up the slack around here. But it's just the two of us, Tigger and Coach Ooh, Jen. This it's time. a heavy load. It's a heavy load. It's a heavy load. <laughs> And today, the chit-chat topic fell to me. Yes. Yes. Tigger should know better by now, but hey, it's my turn. So (laughs) my query this time around is bridal fashion, not B-R-I-D-A-L fashion, B-R-I-D-L-E fashion. The more important one, of course. The more important one. Every few years or so, there's a big shakeup in tack fashion in various and sundry disciplines. And I noticed that the dressage universe is going through a bit of a fashion shakeup. And I wanted to get your take on the most recent fashion takeups because enormously wide nose bands and brow bands were all the rage for a while. Yeah. And right now, weirdly shaped flappy brow bands seem to be in. And all kinds of funky pseudo ergonomic (laughs) shapes for the crown pieces are in. Whatever works best for the horse. (laughs) I mean, these crown pieces for horses that have very sensitive atlases or their atlas, they can have anything like that. I think those very strangely padded and designed crowns are actually very beneficial, Uh but not every horse needs it. Not every horse is very interesting. And what about? the crazy pointy brow bands that look like they're a tiara that ought to be on a Marvel character. I can't stand them. Not, they're not for you? No. no. I like a brow band that fits. And if it's going to have bling on it, that doesn't have to be understated. A little glam never hurt anybody. But it looks weird to me when you've got a, a nose band that then has white. So I'm for, if you're going to go for bling on the top, make everything else very subdued. Ah, so there's that whole don't wear plaids and flowers at the same time problem. (laughs) I also think that for a horse that doesn't have a lot of white on its face, having a nose band that's got some white in it is very attractive. But if a horse already has a big white blaze, it's like, why? Mm-hmm. You've got this beautiful big white place. Yeah. A long time ago when black bridles with white padding were all the rage. The I never rage. got that back then because it's like, oh my gosh, it's a horse. Why are we adding more white? Bad enough you have to wear white breeches. <laughs> um, patent leather, is that still hot? I have. I don't see it in bridles. It certainly is in boots. Yeah. But yeah, they're I never, easier I, to clean, evidently. They're, yeah, but they're, I never cared for the patent leather on the bridle. I just think it's tacky. Looking. Yeah, it's too much. Yeah, it's too plasticky for me. My favorite double bridle, which I still have, is a rolled one. Oh, I'm so partial to rolled leather. Uh, just And my Grand Prix horse had not a big, I mean, it was a warm blood, but he had a more refined head. And it just suited him not to have so much leather. There's a lot of equipment they're required to wear on their heads once they get into 
double bridle world. And when you make it a wide design, that can be pretty overwhelming and you you can't see the horse's face for all the stuff. Interesting. So are there any other current trends besides patent leather and bizarre tiara shaped brow bands (laughs) that draw your attention good, either good or bad? I love all the different colored jackets. Oh, really? And shad bellies. I do. It's like a relief. Interesting. Now, to is, my eyes. are the shad bellies, which are tails, that's it's like a coat yeah. with tails, if you're not familiar with what a shad belly is, is it universal that in classes where you are either allowed to or required to wear a shad belly, that it's always permitted to choose your color or are there certain classes that no no i'm sorry you have to wear the navy or the black i think that there is no restriction i mean i I mean look at the dutch they wore orange in the olympics well they're the dutch they can wear orange anywhere they want i don't think there's any rule in the u.s i mean people i've seen people in gray in green and so it's it's not a case i mean they're muted colors i mean i haven't seen anybody so it's not a case of in this grand prix class you can choose the color of shad you wear but in this class i'm sorry you have to wear a black or a baby one if it's a shad belly choose your shad belly correct cool there we go that's our interesting and fun chat for today and it's a perfect topic because our guest today is a very well-known and successful grand prix rider jim coford who is also one of the best freestyle riders in the country there we go. And we're going to hear from and him so very soon. To him. Yeah. Here we are with Jim Coford, FEI rider and trainer, who is one of the most accomplished dressage musical freestyle riders in the country. He has won the national championship three times in a row in succession. And his last win, which was in 2019, on Adaya HP was videoed and has been viewed over a million times. Do I have that number, Jim? Yeah, I know. I just checked it the other day because I was uh, checking out some choreography and it was 1.1 million, which <laughs> absolutely floored me. I didn't <laughs> realize how many people <laughs> were looking at dressage videos. So, uh, like I said, I was quite surprised. So, with all your experience, you've ridden a lot of horses, musical freestyles. What would you say are the top three considerations a rider needs before they go in the ring on a freestyle? I mean, where do you put your head and where do you put the music and where do you put your horse? I think everyone has to find their own way. People do freestyles for different reasons. And I think for myself with Adaya, I used the freestyles so that I could keep her performances fresh because I, when you're doing the actual Grand Prix, you at M, you passage and then you turn and then you take a couple steps and then at I, you pee off and then you turn. It just is very formulaic. You do it over and over the same pattern. And when you have a freestyle, you just have a little more freedom. You try to stay with the choreography, but if you need to get out a little bit early or go in a little bit early to an exercise just because the moment feels right. It's so helpful. So when you first start freestyles, I think it's terrific if it's that you have a a general pattern and the music goes, but you're not as beat driven and it's not as tight in the choreography so that you can use it to actually school your horse. So the horse has a positive experience in the ring and the rider isn't so obsessed with the music that he's trying to, I try to use it so that it's a a really fun experience and that I'm not going to make it a stressful one. And to me, when you add music, it makes it fun. It's not an additional source of anxiety. So it actually reduces anxiety for you. For me, it actually does. And actually there's been times before, like when I do the musical freestyle, Anytime there's an opportunity to do any sort of exhibition or performance, I always do it because it really gives me a chance to have the horse go into the ring, have people clap, and get the horses really proud and energized when they go in the ring. 
And I never wanted her to feel drilled. I never wanted her to feel like, oh gosh, here we go again. I wanted her to go in the ring and I wanted people to clap and I wanted her to feel special when she go in the rings. So she would go in the rings and light up. And it really made it so that she was fun to compete. She enjoyed competing. She enjoyed the crowds. And when you have the right music, it just really, the horse is having fun. The crowd is having fun. The rider's having fun. I think it's a, a, a win-win. So when you were asking about considerations for freestyles, I have a horse that was inspired by the crowd. So the, you had the music written for me so that it would encourage like a strong finish where people yeah. would clap or a couple of peak movements where, again, it would draw the audience in and they would spontaneously clap. And like I said, it just enhanced our performances so much. Like I said, I, I, I think it's terrific. Although you see many horses that riders have that go in the ring and the music sounds like elevator music. It's and the riders are writing a pattern. The music vaguely changes, and they're obviously writing freestyles from a different place than I am. I'm letting myself go and just riding the riding the wave, and for them, they're just writing another test. So. I I just want to bring up, Jim, and to our listeners, Jim and I have worked together on freestyles. We're longtime collaborators for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And when I first (laughs) made a freestyle for Jim, I had watched him ride some, it was a third level freestyle. It was at the finals, regional finals. And he just bought them, had bought the music to qualify. It gone to Kmart or Walmart, and he just bought a cassette, <laughs> and he just wrote whatever he felt like it at the moment, and <laughs> I was horrified. <laughs> but he got a great score because technically it was really good, and but what impressed me about it was his ability to so let himself go to the music, Jim. I mean, let the music tell you where to go. So Mm -hmm. the only thing that he and I had to work on was when I do the choreography, Jim, this is the choreography. (laughs) And the rest is up to you. That was was a big adjustment for me because before I would right off the seat of my pants because I'd be like, I feel two tempies on a circle. (laughs) And then I'd be facing the wrong direction and think, now what are you going to do? And I'd have to like dig myself out. And sometimes it would have a vague pattern I might try to follow. And then other times I would just completely freestyle it. So it was a bit of adjustment to, if you're going to do FEI tests, yes. uh, like Grand Prix freestyles, I mean, there's so many things you've got to do. And it, you really do have to have a tighter choreography so that and you can actually... And the music is, is edited specifically... Yeah for what you're doing. So anybody that's freewheeling it runs into a little bit of trouble with the music, which is always my, that's my responsibility is the music. What would you like to see in freestyles that we're currently not seeing? I mean, how can we keep pushing the art of music and horse dancing? Honestly, I, I think you do have liberty to make your performances more interesting. Uh, Riders ride for the judges, for the most part, to get a good score. And so the judging does not reward any music that's outside of the box. And it's very tightly controlled. As far as now, you lay down a floor plan, degree of difficulty that is given for each movement and you cannot there's no wiggle room no and so when you watch some of the top writers i mean the performances are beautiful and it is fun to hear fun music and fun horses but i will say the way performances are scored doesn't seem i i I don't know many writers like that is their focus and there is no thought into putting on a performance for the audience as well. And so, and I don't really know that's a quantifiable thing that can be judged. 
But for me, I see no other reason to do it. I mean, I'm not really that worried about what the judges are going to say anyway, because really at the end of the day, I want to have a great time. Yeah. Like with my horse doing great music and like, it just makes it fun for everybody. And so, um, like I said, so I love, like we do a quadrille, which is again, judged, but loosely judged. It is for really, it, it's more about the performance. Yes. And, and there's so, something we have on a score sheet in a competitive Grand Prix quadrille that we're speaking specifically of the challenge of the Americas in Wellington. It's impact score, which there isn't mm-hmm. one on a Grand Prix FEI freestyle test. Right. Honestly, when there's prize money involved, especially <laughs> or when it's a nation's cup, people are like worried about a medal, worried about this. But for me, I'm riding around in my uh, happy little Pinto and I just love being part of like the big competitions. And like I was at a five star in 2020, so it was last year, competition. The p- crowds were packed. It was a beautiful evening and, and, like the crowd knew my music like the minute it started and they were clapping so hard before I even got in the ring. I thought there's no halt. I can't, I don't like, I can barely hear the music and she's so wound up because people are clapping already and I haven't even started. Like how am I even going to halt? So anyways, I never did manage to halt and then she reared one way and then she reared the other way. And then we went on with our test. And to me, it literally made me like laugh and take all the pressure off. Now, those rears cost me a couple thousand dollars in prize money. But it was sort of like when you take your girl out dancing and she's having so much fun, she jumps on the bar and you're like, get off the bar and get down here. And, but it's just, it's funny. It's a laugh. We had such a great time together. And so for me, that's what makes the freestyle performances fun because even though she got a little over the top and jumped in the bar and it, I had to get her down, it was still overall a great performance. And if I had done a Grand Prix and she had gone in and done that, it would have just not gone well. Like, it's just like, yeah, when you go, you just feel like you're in church and you're not supposed to like just fall down. It's just, you just can't, you can't do that in a Grand Prix. And in the freestyle, there's just, it's just a little bit looser and more fun. And yet if you make a mistake, so we're just having too much fun. Eh, whatever, get back down here, let's get on with the job and they prick their ears and get on with it. So it's so much more fun personally, I think for the horses and the riders. And I think in general, like you see horses do extended trots that they don't do. And, and a Grand Prix, you see them doing PF massage tour, but the horses really just fire because they're like, wow, they get so into it. So like I said, I think you see sometimes horse and riders just turn loose and do things that normally they yep. uh, don't do or can't pull off in the confines of a normal test. So you get the adrenaline kicks in and the atmosphere kicks in and the crowd kicks in. And like I said, so it does make it so that it's more uh, fun to watch and fun to do. And like I said, it's not always quantifiable from the judge's standpoint. Sometimes they will reward it, but you know, still the judges there's in the freestyle that she reared and everybody was clapping before you even got in. That final center line, Jim, gave me chills. Yeah, no, it was really fun. It was like the whole like, audience was with you. Well, I was piaffing one handed, and, and, you know, like I said, one handed piaffing, and I had just come off surgery. I wasn't riding well, and it was like, and she just really like, just like said, I got this, Jim. And one handed, the crowd's like deafening, and yes. she just stood there for like 25 steps piaffing, like, yeah. I got this, we're good. And so, anyways, they, like I said, it just, the performances you can bring out really the the best in horses and rider because they I like like I said they're free to just do what they love to do and you just bring out what the horses love to do best because it really does a properly designed freestyle you're just showing off showcasing yeah. your horses strongest movements so so like I said it's a really chance uh, really a fun chance to show off what your horse can do because in the confines of a test it's just like I said it just limits how much individual interpretation and expression and and uh, it's fun just to like I said, show off a little bit. When it comes to music part, you are very intuitive, meaning you hear something and you either immediately resonate with it or you sit back and go, do you think that resonating is important in, in a freestyle? 
Well, you have to hear it so many times. If you just don't like it, it's going to be painful to listen to it over and over again. Because, it, like for me, I don't to, to get good at freestyles. I don't drill the movement. I don't drill the pattern. I don't ride around and around to that pattern to that music. What I do is I ride to it a few times, and then I watch the way it's supposed to be done on video. So I. I have it filmed. So you take my video, take it yeah. to the studio and edit it to that ride. Correct. So I try to keep so that I, so that rather than making it dull for my horse, I want to know the music cues because I might have to listen to the music cues 10 times before I hear some of the nuances in the music to mm-hmm. I, so I know how early to set up for what, whatever exercise I'm doing or when I have to finish that pirouette or when I have to finish that line of changes so I'll have enough time to set up for the... And so the, the music that goes to it, I like I said, I want to listen to it over and over whether I'm driving in the car or watching it on, listening to it on my phone. I just want to know the music really well. And then I ride to it a few times with my horse, but I want to keep my horse pretty fresh and a little bit not too secure where they're going so that it can keep them sucking in your back and listening to, to what's coming up next. So like I said, I, the music is important because like and the music can inspire you and just yeah. bring out the, the best pieces of your writing. And so, for instance, with my Mayor Adeline that we did a freestyle mm-hmm. uh, with this year, it's instead of having a strong ride like we did with Rhett or Daya, it's much more subtle but very beat-driven. And yeah. what I love about this freestyle is that for this horse, very hot, yeah. that helps me identify the perfect rhythm, the perfect trot. And She's a horse that's very, I can create whatever rhythm I want with my seat. So having the perfect tempo really helps me find the perfect trot. And then I can just keep that. It's like having a metronome. So you're riding to a metronome, but just in a very metronome with this like music that is just beautiful and flowing. And so again, it just makes you want to ride as beautiful as the music you've been very clever at helping identify the purpose of the freestyle. So with Adaya, it, she loved the attention and the uh, crowd engagement. And this mayor, we're trying to sort of show off how light footed and elastic she is, but not get, the crowd on their feet. <laughs> not, so, yet. So not, it's, yes. not yet. Not yet. Not yet. It's it's a terrific. The freestyles can be such a terrific training tool that way. So that deciding how you could help your horse in their development. It, like I said, I think freestyles are a great training exercise. Some riders make the mistake of saying, I'm not going to do a freestyle till I'm FEI. Well, you get a lot of mileage out of doing a first level, a second level, a third level, a fourth level. It's experience and you get used to riding to music and having to make adjustments because even in a lower level freestyle, you may get ahead of the music. And you have to know it so well that you can half halt, not lose the trot or the canter that you're in to make the adjustments so that you stay on the music. And you just don't, I don't think people, most riders are born with that ability to make those adjustments until you've done it a lot. So I really encourage people to start, ride the lower level freestyles and really get a feel for riding to music. I absolutely agree. And I do think there is something to be said for when you're at the lower levels, it's just so much about being a technician. But when you're yeah. writing a freestyle, you also have to be a technician. Like it really also helps you focus on the flow. If you're like flowing to the movement, you've got to let go and not only be technically precise in whatever movement you're doing, but go flowing with the music. So it adds a different dimension so that your writing becomes less regimen, softer, more elegant, more dancer-like, which is really what we're trying to do to make it beautiful. I remember, and Jim, I've done musical freestyles, written them myself from first to Grand Prix. And the one thing that I found is that as soon as the music started outside the arena, I had this feeling of just letting myself go. I got out mm-hmm. of my head, and I wasn't in my head anymore. I was just following the music. I was just going with the music. The music was guiding me. And mm-hmm. 
I think I was a much better rider in a freestyle because I got out of my head and I was just mm -hmm. feeling and sensing and going with the music. Absolutely, without compromising the quality of the work that you're doing. Actually making the work better. Because I think when we yeah. get out of our heads, we are actually riding more from feel and intuition and what the horse is communicating to us in the moment. And we're not mm -hmm. thinking, okay, well, outside leg, we're not thinking of the mechanics so much. It right. becomes more I'm, 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 natural. Absolutely. For me, when I rode the horse Pharaoh, Thank it you. was really interesting because I would do competitive Grand Prix, whatever it was. And I was, it was not usually winning, but for me, it was like, I would watch all these riders that were so unbelievably precise and so elegant. And I was like, I, I just, I just, I, I was like, I'm just not there yet because we were a young partnership. Yeah. And then, but I'm like, but watch this because <laughs> I knew when you turn that music on, when it came just like hot dogging it, Oh, I got this. I mean, you watch, cause I could like, turn that soccer in these great pirouettes, take them back into a piaf, go flying forward. I mean, the horse, like, because we were playing and I knew what my horse was capable of. And I may not be able to make it look as polished and like foot perfect in the Grand Prix, but like hold my beer when it came to like <laughs> going in the ring and just like, look what I can do. Look what this horse can do. So it's, it, it, for me, it was just completely just, I have a side Same. note to that story, because, of course, when I found the music for Pharaoh, it was to Zorro, mm -hmm. the soundtrack to Zorro, the film. And I played it for he and his, and his owner, for Jim and the horse's owner. And the horse's owner connected with it. And Jim is like, mm, meh. <laughs> I'm like, wow, what did I miss out here? Where am I? Because he's so good at just connecting with music. And then I just dug in and I thought, no, I my intuition is telling me this is the right music for this horse. And once we put it together and he wrote it, then you totally owned it. Well, it was pretty, because there's a big difference because so many times when you're doing music for freestyle, you can say, I love this music. It's going to work so great with my horse. And then you ride to it and you're like, eh, it doesn't work at all. And then other times you may hear it on a, in your headphones and think, I love this, but it doesn't convey in a big stadium. Right. It doesn't have the impact. But that Zorro piece, I remember riding it and going, oh, my God, like I didn't realize the impact, like, like, like I was vibrating. My horse was vibrating. Like this is huge. Like you don't even know how huge this is. Like, the, like it just worked in a big stadium full of people. It was just like, oh, had Devin, it, crazy. it was unbelievable. People and just, Devin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was just huge. And we, we put, well, yeah. what Jim and I like to do is the endings. We like to make really strong and that Zorro piece was so strong at the end. It blew people's minds. They were standing up. I mean, that's yeah. how it affected them. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really fun freestyle, too. And again, we were green to the, that was our first year Grand Prix. So technically, like I said, our tests were just okay, but we were able to really, like he had some pretty special abilities and we were able to yes. recapitalize on them for the actual freestyle test. So that was fun. And that's a really good point, Jim, is that no matter what the level of freestyle, whatever your horse does well with a freestyle, you can capitalize on it and you can minimize what they don't do well. So a horse that's not strong in a pirouette, you don't want to do a double. But right. a horse that's really good at a pirouette, you absolutely want to do a double. And mm -hmm. if your horse is a little wonky on the one tempies, you want to keep it on a straight line. But if your horse is a whiz kid with a one tempi, make it a bending line. And that's even true yeah. at first level. If your horse is really good at leg yielding, show it off. Make it either steeper or more interesting. Add another element to it that makes it a little bit more difficult that the horse can master well or do well. That's the cool thing about freestyles is you can really show off what they're good at. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And that's the fun part, too. 
And the horses like that because it's all about them. When it makes sense for the horses too. Yes. So that if your horse, so many times in a dressage test, the changes, flying changes come at the end of the test. Well, if your horse gets nervous in the changes, you can do them in the beginning of the test. And so they're done, they're out of the way, then you can focus on the other stuff. So you can just put it in you know, the order so that it makes sense for, say, if your horse's trot work is better after the canter first. So, like I said, it just gives you so many uh, chances just to really enhance what your horse does and give them a positive experience in the ring and show off your horse's best qualities. You know, like I said, I, I love doing a good freestyle. And we love watching them. <laughs> it's really fun, too. So many times the, the, the lower levels, they take more artistic risks, too, with the music. Because, they do. Yeah, they're just... Uh, I, I don't know. Like I said, it's just really fun to listen to uh, some of the music that people pull out for them. And again, we tend to get in this sport with in freestyles, particularly at the FEI level, we get into a little bit of a box. And it's really important with riders like Jim who want to push the envelope. Because in pushing the envelope, then you open it up and for more artistic creation and more exploration of what's possible with horses going to music. Hello, humans. <laughs> How are you, Hetty? I'm fantastic. And you? Very good. We have an interesting question for you. We just finished an interview with Jim Coford about freestyles. You mean foot grabber? Yes. And Dirty we wondered. Foot grabbing freak that he is. <laughs> we wondered what you thought of maybe getting yourself involved in a doggy freestyle. Thank you, but no. <laughs> Gee, I guess I could see that coming. Why not? You're adorable. You're a good mover. But I can do this on my own time. And I don't take direction well. Oh, well, that's a good point. Well, what happens if you just could, like, do a, a spontaneous freestyle for your fans? One day, maybe. With maybe a live orchestra? Well, we're going to have one of those here soon, so yes. What music would you choose for yourself? My theme song. I have several. But the first one would be from Pink. I'm a nitty-gritty, dirty little freak. Please, <laughs> my part. That's my first one. Okay. For sure. Mm -hmm. And then my second piece of music would definitely be um, Taylor Swift. You need to calm down. <laughs> You're being too loud. And then I've chosen this one for my service. It's a little bit of a variation on a popular Elton John tune. You might recall it as, I never thought I'd lose. I only thought I'd win. But in honor of my servant. I always knew you'd lose. <laughs> I never thought you'd win. And there you have it. There we go. Hedwig's mm -hmm. music for her next freestyle. Available yeah. on iTunes <laughs> yeah. in 2022. Right. Thank you, Hedwig. Take care, Hedy. Bye-bye. Bye. And now it's time for the breed of the show. We're now at Breed of the Show, and we have a very interesting dog called the Puffin Dog, which Jennifer is going to tell us all about. That's right, the Puffin Dog, more accurately known as the Norwegian Lundehund, which is Puffin Dog. Say that fast three times. Yeah, say that real fast, because Lund, L-U-N-D-E, is Puffin in Norwegian. Ah, would never have thought that. So that hound. Yeah, so it's the Puffin Dog. And... They originated in the remote islands up near the Arctic Circle in Norway around the late 1500s. And they were used to hunt puffins, which oh. were also known as the sea parrot, which were a important source of food for folks up there. I mean, when you live on a remote island in the Arctic Circle, there's not a lot of options. No. And you get tired of fish after a while. You, you say, just have to have some white meat chicken. That's right. Just have me have to have me some puffin. 
And these dogs were required to climb all about on the rocks and crevices and nooks. So they developed some interesting physical characteristics and skills. But by the early 1900s, they were very nearly extinct because new methods of hunting puffins came along. And then after that, there was a dog tax. And then after that, there was distemper outbreaks. And by 1963, there were only six surviving wow. Lundehunds in, the, in Norway. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. That's crazy. And of those six, five of them had the same mom. Uh-oh. Yeah. So genetic diversity is a struggle for this breed to this day. And if you're wondering what a Lundehund looks like, it's a small square dog, about 12 to 16 inches in height. So he's kind of about the size of a big beagle. Only about 15 pounds. Wow. Not a big dog. But they have that short, dense, huggable coat like a Spitz or a sled dog does. Oh, nice. Or a Pomeranian. Or a Pomeranian. And some of those structural characteristics that I mentioned earlier, and they are required to have these things to this day, they have to have at least, count them, six toes on each foot. Wow. Now, I find it interesting that it says at least six. Yes, because maybe they'll have seven or eight. Exactly. It doesn't say seven or eight's bad. It's just that they have to have at least six. And these extra toes are functional toes. They're not like dew claws. They actually have tendons and muscular attachments and stuff so that they work. And if you look up pictures of Norwegian Lundhounds, find a picture of them doing their job, climbing on the rocks. And the way they climb up the rocks, they're... If you can imagine a person mountain rock climbing, you get to a rock and you have to lift yourself up through a crevice. You have a hand on each side and you're doing a pull up through the rocks. Well, that's what they do with their feet. And those little claws on the side dig into the rocks. And then their shoulders are designed so that their feet go way out beside them. Like it's crazy. And then when they're just running around normally, their legs do this really weird roundabout gate because their legs go out besides them like a person holding their arms out to their sides. <laughs> it's crazy looking. Wow. Yeah. So that's what they that's what they had done that before. And then one of the really weird ones they have is their spine and their shoulders are designed so that their head can turn around back behind them and they can touch their nose to their spine. Wow. So that when they get into a nook or a cranny or a crevice, they can use turn around. their feet to, and then they can turn their head around and get back out. Crazy. Crazy. But very wisely, I'm sure, when you show your Lundehund at a dog show, the judge may not ask you to demonstrate whether or not your dog can do this. <laughs> because obviously you don't want to be twisting your dog's head and neck all around. And uh, yeah. That's something he should do on his own and you shouldn't ask him to. They have, a, like I said, typical double coat of a Arctic-designed dog. So thick, dense hair that's going to require a lot of grooming and a lot of vacuuming. They are expected to be an alert and attentive dog and reasonably loyal, but they're not going to be the kind of dog that warms up to just everybody. He's going to be kind of the dog that he loves his family, but if a traveling salesman comes to the door, he's not going to be real keen on him. Not a breed for everybody. Not a breed for everybody. And it was fun because I went to a lot of different sources for the information. And in Wikipedia, they mention this, but on the AKC website, they do not. A minor issue with the Lundahun is gastroenteropathy, which is a digestive order, which the animal cannot absorb nutrients from its food. Uh-oh. I didn't think that sounded minor. No. <laughs> that could go back to how closely bred they are. Precisely. There no I couldn't find any reference to whether or not they have discovered if that's related to the fact that at one point they kind of had a genetic bottleneck in the early 1900s. I would be surprised if that wasn't why it's like that. Um, Sounds can, to me like it's a Jack Russell Terrier from Nor- Norway. <gasps> that's a good one. I like that. Well, now that um, puffin hunting is no longer a thing. Thank God. <laughs> well, they had to eat, right? I love puffins. But they had to I eat. canoed in Kachemak Bay, Alaska with puffins. There you go. Oh, that's right. Puffins and uh, sea otters. Yes. But the puffins are j- adorable in a different way, and they're really funny. 
to wrap up the discussion of the Norwegian Lundehund, <laughs> they have found a new purpose and they're starting to use them at airports that are near the ocean. And they send the dogs out and they collect seagull eggs out of the seagull nests and bring them back so that they don't get to hatch and make more seagulls that fly into the engines of the airplanes. Well, that's very cool. Is that not brilliant? Yes. Every airport should have at least one. <laughs> Every airport should have at least one Lundehund. So there you go. The Norwegian Lundehund. And now we're at Critter Nutrition, and the topic is the devils in the details. This is going to be an abridged version. You can read the entire article on our website. It will also be in the show notes. The raising, care, training, and campaigning of horses requires close attention to details. Whether you keep your horses in your own backyard or at a boarding or training barn, there are a lot of details in the management of horses, young or old. There are also a lot of details to consider when riding, like strides in a gymnastic, riding a correct 20-meter circle, our balance, use of aids, reward, and correction. At Biostar, formulating a supplement is all about the details. How a new product begins. Biostar supplement starts with a need. It has specific issue or overall support. Sometimes riders ask us, can you make XYZ for my horse? Our own story began this way. I needed to increase circulation in the feet of my Grand Prix horse, and Furnace EQ was born. When the need is identified like a supplement for allergies, then the research begins. It starts with veterinary protocol. Standard veterinary protocol, it's important for the many varying health issues in horses. We won't create formulas that are going to interfere with veterinary medications or protocol. Biostar supplements are an integrative tool in the toolbox of health. An eye to the East. Eastern medicine provides a holistic paradigm that addresses the whole body and approaches symptoms as part of the overall system. Applying the Ayurvedic and Chinese medicine principles helps to shape the formula, provides insight into specific plants, fungi, and foods that can synergistically correct imbalances. Science and Research Every ingredient Biostar incorporates into a formula is backed by published studies and research. Many of the unique patented ingredients we use are further supported by clinical trials. Our attention does not end when a product is released. We continue to track the science as more studies become available. Sourcing ingredients. Sourcing ingredients is one of the most challenging parts of creating a Biostar supplement. Biostar has very clear requirements on raw materials. The list is a mile long and includes cannot be made from or sourced from petrochemicals and their byproducts. Must be traceable from farm to table. Cannot be sourced from GMOs or bioengineered foods. Fruit powders cannot be sourced using drum drying methods that include maltodextrin. Certified organic preferred. Ingredients must be derived from plant, fungi, or whole food. Certificate of analysis must include heavy metal testing and be below standard threshold. Must meet environmental sustainability standards, including fair trade. Must have rigorous scientific studies and certification. Patented ingredients. Patented ingredients are very expensive. They can be two to three times the cost of generic ingredients. These ingredients cost more for good reason. The research, clinical trials, and increased bioavailability, thus effectiveness, means its performance is tested and backed by science. After all, what's the point of using an ingredient with low bioavailability? We aren't going to use an ingredient just to put it on a label. It has to actually work. We often cut our profit margins to accommodate superior ingredients into a formula because superior ingredients simply work better country of origin matters. Biostar remains the only equine and canine supplement company that lists the country of origin of every ingredient on our product pages. We have done this since our inception, and yet no other company has followed our lead. To me, full disclosure can't be full disclosure without country of origin. Consumers have the right to know where ingredients come from that they are using for their horses and dogs. 
in a global economy, made in the USA is important, but it's only half the story. Made in the USA does not mean the ingredients came from the USA. Dosage counts. The amount of each ingredient in a formula matters a great deal. In many cases, a patented nutraceutical requires a smaller dosage than its generic counterpart because of increased bioavailability. For example, quercetin. In its generic form, it has a recommended human dose of 500 to 1,000 milligrams per day. The patented quercetone phytosome, known as quercifit, however, has a human dose of 200 milligrams. When comparing human dosage to horse dosage, the amount needed for efficacy can be two to seven times that of the human dose, depending on the ingredient. In the case of quercetin, there are equine supplements on the market that provide 200 to 500 milligrams of generic quercetin. This makes the label look good because it has quercetin listed, and it saves the company money because it's generic. But the low amount of less bioavailable quercetin is not going to benefit the horse. From farm to feed bucket. Ten years ago, Biostar went through the non-GMO project verification certification process. In order to be certified, we had to show traceability from farm to our facility and products for every single ingredient. On top of all this, we had to show documentation and verification on every single ingredient. The details involved are lengthy, but we continue to use the certification of farm to feed bucket and adhere to it today. Product testing. New Biostar formulas get tested in the field before they are ever brought to market. Sometimes we begin with one single ingredient, testing it on horses for palatability, dosage, and possible adverse effects. It can take months of field testing on a variety of horses before we decide if the product or ingredient should be created for sale. We take the input from the testing group very seriously. If we are not getting the results we hope for, we either adjust the formula ingredients and amounts and retest or shelve the product entirely. Every new product is sent out for independent lab testing to ensure potency, quality, and nutritional components before release. Biostar is one of only a few equine supplement companies that make our own products. We do not use private label or third-party supplement manufacturers. This gives us total control of ingredients and our own unique processes with whole food. This includes powders, pastes, and dehydrated bars. We still cut our own carrots and sprout our own seeds. Every step in the process of physically making a supplement has its own rigorous standards from start to finish. And let me tell you, the paperwork alone would qualify for an FEI steward's job. Horse people are fussy. They have to be. And so is Biostar. We are fastidious about ingredients, processing, and making supplements. We are meticulous about details. And we are persnickety about raw materials, science, and sourcing. We seek out the most advanced ingredients, test them, and ensure a train of traceability from farm to feed bucket. We are sticklers for the details because we are horse people. And now we're at Coffee Clatch, and our question of the show is, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book about animals would you want to have with you? This was easy for me. (laughs) I bet it was. It was easy for me. James Harriet. And that was exactly what I had. See, I, I, you probably, if you probably, if you quizzed 500 <laughs> horsey people, you would probably get 200 would say James Harry. Now, if I had my preference, I would take Bright and Beautiful because that's my personal favorite of all, what, seven of them? Yeah. James Harry. And my close second, I did have a second, is the collected works of Winnie the Pooh by A.A. A. Milne. Oh, wow. My second was Dr. Doolittle. Oh, that's a good one, too. Yeah. And then if I could have one other book, it would be Wind in the Willows. Hmm, Or Black Beauty. One of those two. Oh, Black Beauty is so sad, though. It is. But if I'm stuck on a deserted island, I'm already sad. You're already sad. There you go. (laughs) So. (laughs) 
And then I thought, oh, might be nice to have Misty of Chincoteague. Oh, I think Misty of Chincoteague I would go for because that's a very uplifting story. Yes, I like that one. it is. It has a happy ending, so to speak. Spoiler yes. alert if you haven't read it yet. <laughs> she does not die. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. We both picked the same book. Yeah. There you go. Anything by James Harriet. I love reading him. I read him. I listen to him. And I've only recently discovered Winnie the Pooh. That is not a... Come on! I did not read Winnie the Pooh as a kid. I did read Gorgeous George was the monkey that was also an astronaut. Curious George! Curious George, thank you. I read Curious George, but I did not read Winnie the Pooh when I was little. And uh, I've recently learned to appreciate Winnie the Pooh. Well, now you appreciate Tigger. Yes. Well, well, everybody knows about Tigger, but I love his prose. Yes. And when I read A.A. Milne... I have to read it, I'm going to use my air quotes, aloud. You have to hear it. If it's only oh, in my wow. head, it's not as good. I like. To, I want to be able to hear it. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It has, it has a, it's, even though most Do of Do you read it to Glenn? No. Oh, okay. No, I don't. <laughs> I was just thinking in your adventure, um, there we glamping. Go. See, um, and I, I would love to do that, but I can't read in the car. Can't. Does no. it make you sick? Yes, I cannot read in the car. But Glenn will read to me in the car. Wow. Because he can read in the car and not get sick. So if I'm driving, he'll read to me. And back in the day, before there were cell phones you could read or laptops you could carry around, one of the things we used to do a lot on road trips was magazine, newspaper. We read, <laughs> and I used to be able to read in the car, uh, read each other articles from the paper. Yep. We used to do that. Yeah. But that's interesting. So a, you would do James Harriet yep. or Misty of Chincoteague. Or Dr. Doolittle. Or Dr. Doolittle. I'm going to have to reinvestigate Dr. Doolittle. I had not thought of there that There are one. a bunch of, I mean, there's a series of Dr. Doolittle. Yes, books. there's a whole bunch of them. Dr. Doolittle goes to the moon. Yeah. 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 And but I, the original, uh, the first one, it's all creatures great and small. Yes. Yes. There's just something so special. Well, there we go. If you have a favorite animal book that you would love to have with you in the case of being stuck on a desert island with only one book to the read to read for the rest of your life tell us what it is and they can do that where at biostarus.com or healthycritters.com or on facebook at healthy critters yep there you go Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to our sponsor, Biostar US. You can find them online at biostarus.com. Get the Horse Radio Network phone app on iOS or Android by searching for Horse Radio Network in the App Store. It's free and easy to use. For details about today's show, go to healthycrittersradio.com, where you can find links, photos, and more information about our guests. As always, we love your feedback. Please follow us on Facebook under Healthy Critters Radio. Be sure to visit all the great shows on Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. <laughs> <laughs>